this morning. My goal is to wrap up what we're doing in here this morning. And then next Sunday we have a missionary. Um, the Ingalls family will be with us and they'll be presenting during the ABF time, um, kind of reporting on what's going on with military ministry. And then, um, then the following Sunday you'll go back to our regular ABF schedule. So um, the, the goal was to give teachers a little bit of a break. We gave them a, a longer break than, than, uh, than we had planned. So I would expect that when you go back to your ABFs and other classes, they should be like really raring and ready to go and like just like knock your socks off. So not, not to build up any pressure on them or anything. But uh, Romans chapter 8, we're talking about um, just the glory of the gospel. And I, we've spent several weeks just trying to unpack um, just the, the gloriousness of the gospel, and today I want to kind of finish that up and transition into what the Bible has to say about how we share the gospel. Um, one of my observations has been, um, I've been a believer for a long time, and one of my observations has been is that when it comes to sharing the gospel, um, it's like um, whenever, you, uh, whenever you, you buy some new product and everything is like completely prepackaged, and there's like five easy steps to do this. And when it comes to sharing the gospel, I think the way that often that it's presented is, 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 you know, well, it's just this simple. You do this, this, and this, and you're going to get this result every time. And, and I think the danger of that is, one, it's, it's wrong. But the danger of that is, is that when you don't get results, you get discouraged in, in living out the gospel and sharing the gospel. And and I think that's, that's, that's a wrong way to look at it. So Romans chapter 8, we've, we've been talking about um, verses 28 and 29. Those who he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We didn't get a chance to really talk about this final step of glorification. And to me, this is, this is the most exciting part of it when you think about it. Um, if you want to work your way backward, I think you can say it this way. Those who are glorified are justified. Those who are justified are called. Those who are called are predestined. And those who are predestined are foreknown. That's just looking at that list and working backward. But this idea of being justified and then glorified, there's a word that I think that needs to not because the Bible has it wrong, but I think there's a word that needs to be put in between those two for our understanding. Justified is a one-time act where God declares us to be righteous, declares us to be just, declares us to be in good standing with him, in right relationship with him. That deals with how God views us, okay? And the confusing thing for us is we view everything through a time continuum. God doesn't. God doesn't. He sees, the, the moment that he called, he sees us as glorified. Now that's really hard, because none of us feel very glorified, none of us are very glorified, really, when you think about it. So, so there's this process that we go through in, in our Christian life after, after that moment of, of regeneration. After that moment of regeneration, there's this process that goes on and, and, and God's using it, using it to make us more like Christ, to make us glorified. But the word that I want to put in between justification and glorification is the word sanctification. Okay? Um, someone help, me, help us all to understand. What's your understanding of the word sanctification? What, what's it? Yes, Jim. Yeah, there, there's definitely that. There's, there's, you see it in the book of Philippians where Paul says this, that um, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, but then he says later on, who's the one who does the work? God does the work, right? And it's a both and thing, right? So, so when you said synergism, I'm like, oh, where's he going with that? But that makes sense to me, Jim. It makes, that makes good sense to me. Um, so this idea of, of sanctification... Um, Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul, Paul is giving a, an apologetic for his ministry and for, and for himself as a person, but, but he's talking 
in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 about, about his role. And, and his role is, is that he is now a, a preacher, a proclaimer, an ambassador for this new covenant, okay? And, and so as he's talking about this, he, he's, he's going back to Moses, okay? Um, and, and so I want to try to get into it, but it's going to be really hard to get into it without like taking a half hour to unpack it. But let's go um, verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Okay, do you, do you know what, what Paul's referring to with Moses and the veil? What, what's he referring to? You're shaking your head, yes, Denny. Help us to know it's... Right. Put a veil over his face. Why? Yeah, so they wouldn't see it fading. And they also, because when you, when you see that, there's always a part of you that, that, like, why can't I be like that too? Why isn't that happening to me? Okay? And so, so he says, Moses, so that there wouldn't be an outcome of what was being brought to an end. Verse 14, but their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. And now he's talking about this spiritual veil over their hearts. And, and the only way that the veil is lifted is, is if God lifts the veil. The, veil. the veil's blocking, okay? The veil's keeping them from seeing. But when one turns to the Lord, verse 16, the veil is removed, okay? Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You won't see the word sanctification there in verse 18, but that is what sanctification is. The more that you and I behold the Lord, where do we behold the Lord? Do we sit in our dining rooms and look at the picture of Jesus that was handed to you from your grandmother that, you know, that's been handed down? Where, where is it that we see the Lord? As we're, as, we're, as we're face-to-face with God in his word, as he's speaking to us, as we're, as we're meditating on what he, is, and what he is saying to us, as we are face-to-face with God in his word, it is changing us. He says it this way. Paul says, from one degree, from one level of glory to another. Okay, which then says this, if you are not spending time in God's word, have you just reached a certain level and you're just going to stay there? I would say, no, you're going to slip. You're actually going to regress. You're going to regress if you don't, if you're not in the word, you're not going to say, oh, well, I made it to this level. I think I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing better than, than half my church family, definitely better than my ABF leader, and definitely better than half the elders in my church, so I'm just going to stay there. Okay, I'm, I've reached this point. No, no. It's, it's, it's a constant where we are staying before the Lord. Um, Jesus, in a, in a well-known verse, in John 17, when he's praying that great high priestly prayer for his disciples and then for us, in John 17, verse 17, he says, sanctify them. How? Through truth. And then what does he say? Your word is truth. Okay? He's praying for, he was praying specifically for, for his disciples right there because he hadn't really shifted to pray for us yet in the prayer. But, but that prayer applies to us. He's saying, sanctify them. Continue to set them apart. Continue to glorify, make them more like me. And the way that they're going to do that is, is through your truth. Okay? And so, so what he was praying for them, what he's praying for us is, is that as we are, as we are in the word daily, as we're in the word searching and being in front of God's face, that he is changing us to be like him. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, because this seems to be so um, kind of nebulous and out there, because it's, it's not something that we readily observe. But Paul puts it in a different way in Philippians chapter 3, okay? And, and he says this in verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, Paul makes a point here to remind us, okay? He's talking to believers. He's talking to the church there in Philippi. He's talking to us. We, we, are, we are not 
just earthly here. We have a higher citizenship. We're dual citizens. And, and he's saying our citizenship is in heaven. And then he goes on to say, we're waiting for Christ, verse 21, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Is this just some kind of metaphysical thing here that's going to happen? Or, or is this transformation that, that God's talking about involving all, the whole of man? If he's going to transform even our bodies, does it involve the whole of man? Yeah. Yeah. So, so what's being talked about here is, is going to be practical, okay? Um, John talks about it in 1 John chapter 3, okay? And, and, and keeping in mind, connecting this back to the gospel, this all begins with, with gospel transformation in a heart, okay? This, this, and, it's, and it's being fueled by the gospel, if you will, this transformation that's taking place. 1 John chapter 3, in verse 2, says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who, has, who thus hopes in him purifies himself even as he is pure. Okay? Here's, here's where the gospel change is going, friends. The gospel change is going this far. That when Christ appears, what does John say? He says this emphatically. What will we be like? We're going to be just like him. We're going to be just like him. Isn't that what it says there? In, in verse 2, he says, we, we, it hasn't appeared, but we know, we're confident, that, that word could be translated confident, that when he appears, we shall be like him. Okay? I want to give you some hope here. I don't know that many of us feel very Christ-like in our normal day-to-day -day operation. Right? I don't feel very Christ-like. And if we do, it probably means we have a pride problem, right? <laughs> and we're going like, I'm very Christ-like here. Um, this, this whole process that God is working on, this, this, the thing that, that sometimes is so hard for us to do, to interact with God in his word, and like, I'm not getting anything from it. And, and some days I go to the Bible and it feels like I'm just drinking like just dry sand, and there's nothing there. God is using that process to make us like Christ. And when Christ appears, we're going to be just like him. That's where this is all headed. That's where this is going. And so then he says that should have a practical aspect in our daily living. What's the practical aspect in verse 3? It says it should, one, give us hope, and that hope should do what? What's that? Okay. It causes us to purify ourselves. It causes us to, to think about this and, like, and, and to really dwell on this. And one of the things that we wrestle with is, is we wrestle with this idea of being a changed person, a regenerated heart that's living in a very wicked place, right? Right? And, and too often, we, we walk in this world, we get our hands, we get our feet, we get all the way up to our knees dirty in this world sometimes, don't we? And, and the thing is, that I think that God's pointing to us, that John would point us to is, if we were sitting down and saying, John, help me, I'm dealing with this, all this sin in my life, and he would say this, okay, I want you to think about what Christ is changing you into. I want you to focus on that. And, and, I want you to, and I want you to consider that every day. When you get up in the morning, John would say to us, I want you to remember the fact that, that you are in the process of being glorified. And, and I want that to, one, give you hope. And number two, it ought to change the way that you live. It ought to change the way that you live. So, with that in mind, having the way that we live changed... Because the gospel is powerful, because it's hopefully radically changed your life, because you're secured by Christ, we're called to boldly share that, okay? Sadly, 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 and I say this about myself, not many of us give the, give the impression that the gospel has gloriously transformed us. We don't. 
We're too busy being angry about everything that's going on around us and how, and how the world is going to hell in a handbasket and all these things. We're too busy being angry about all that to, to demonstrate that the gospel has truly changed us. Do you remember the last time that you ran into a truly positive believer and you interacted with them and you're like, there's something really different about that person? Is that a rare thing? Come on, is that a rare thing? Why? Should it be a rare thing? That's indicting on ourselves, isn't it? I, I look at myself and I'm like, well, yeah, the world is a terrible place and I can get really down about that and I don't like what's happening in Washington and I don't like what's happening in Ukraine and I don't like what's happening. And, and, but here's the thing, I can't change any of that. I can't change any of that. I can pray for my leaders, I'm told to do that, but what I can do is I can live out the gospel that's supposedly really transformed me. Someone said this, and I, and I love this. Unregenerate people don't read Bibles, they read believers. And you know what? You know what? I think a lot of us as believers are really a boring read. Why would they want to read us? Why would they? Should they want to read us? Should, should there be something appealing about talking to a believer? There should be, shouldn't there? So let's look and let's start with this idea of sharing our faith. Let's start with where Jesus started. Let's go back to familiar verses. Let's go to Matthew chapter 28, okay? Let's go to Matthew chapter 28. So verse 16, this is, this is after the Lord's resurrection. He says, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Okay? Imagine putting yourself in the shoes of the 11 disciples. Jesus gets word to you. I want you to meet me here at this spot. I want you to meet me here this day at this spot. You show up and you're like, oh man, this is going to be it. This, this, is, this is probably the meeting where he's going to roll out the big plan now and, and this is going to be everything for us. This is going to be how the world's going to change. Rome, you're in big trouble, all this stuff, right? And when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted, probably Thomas, a few others. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Whoa, if you're sitting there, you're like, oh, he's really, oh, yes, I love this. All authority, here we go. He's going to drop the hammer, right? Notice the hammer he drops. All authority is given to me, Jesus says, so you go. You go. Wait, wait, time out. This is the good part where we just like world conquest and domination and we don't have to put up with all this garbage that we've been suffering anymore. No, you go and you make disciples of the nations. You baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always till the end of the age. There's a command and there's a promise there, right? What's the command? Go. And in that command, there's several parts in that command, right? You go, you make disciples, okay? Is that just a command to to the spiritually elite, to um, the disciples in that day, and in our day it would be pastors and missionaries, is that just an exclusive command or is that a command to all believers? You convinced of that? Is it a command for all? How do we make disciples? What do we begin with with making disciples? Where, do, where does a disciple begin? Are disciples, are they automatic learners and followers of Jesus? Are people automatically that? So where do we begin? We begin with evangelism, right? We begin with evangelism. It begins with, with, with sharing the gospel. It begins with, with, with that. Keep your, keep your uh, mind on that, and let's go over to Acts chapter 1. A parallel passage. Luke records a little bit of a different swing on it here. Acts chapter 1. How do I know they're looking for political revolution? Well, because Luke told us in Acts chapter 1 and verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? 
Okay, it's go time, right, Lord? Here we go. Um, I know where we, you know, I can just see some of the disciples, James and Peter, maybe like, I know where we can get weapons. I know where we can do that. I know where we can get a militia. I know where we, you know, and, and, and verse seven, he said to them, it's not for you to know the time or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. It's like, you don't have, if we put it in today's vernacular, you don't have security clearance for that, and I'm not telling you. Not telling you. But here's what I am going to tell you, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. That's the same word in the Greek that we get martyrs from. You'll be my martyrs. Where? In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of, of the earth. And you know what was true about those 11 guys that he talked to? They really were. Most, if not all. We're, we're casualties of gospel ministry, right? So we understand then from Matthew and from Acts that the imperative is very clear, isn't it? This is what you're called to do. And part of discipleship is you're evangelizing and you are, you are transferring the responsibility of being witnesses to more people as you're, going, as you're moving along, Right? It's like the ultimate pyramid scheme, except it's not a scheme, right? You, 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 this, thing, this thing is growing. It's a growing movement, okay, if it's done right. What does that look like? What does that look like? Because as I said before, too often it's kind of like, here's, here's Jesus and here's what he can do for you. Can I sign you up? You want to buy this? And it's not supposed to be that way. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. I think Peter is quite qualified to talk about what it means to be a disciple and a follower of Jesus. Do you agree with me on that? Peter, Peter's quite qualified to, to speak to this. And, and Peter, Peter's quite qualified to give us some, some good counsel on what it means to, to share our faith. So... He's going to use some statements that we talked about last week about Jesus when, when we saw Jesus there in the temple talking about the stone that the builder rejected. In verse 8, um, verse 7, he says, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But... Okay, he's talking about unbelievers there. Now, verse 9, but you are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may what? May just enjoy all the benefits of this and be different and look down your nose at the rest of the world and be angry about politics and Washington and everything else? No. What is it that, we are, we are, that we're chosen for? What is it that, that we are a royal priesthood? Why are we a holy nation? Why does God want to possess us? What's the point of it all? What's he saying? so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Okay? Let's understand this for a second. You're a chosen race. You're, 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 God, you're a hand-picked. You're hand-picked. Chosen. Like recess, kickball team. Right? Chosen. Okay, not, not, not looking to, to get an argument here, but when it says chosen, God really chose us to, to do this. A royal priesthood, okay? Elsewhere in the scriptures it says that we're made kings and priests to God, okay? We're a holy nation, we're a set apart, a people for his own possession, okay? Think about the ways believers over the generations have tried to, to take this and present themselves as holy and set apart. What are some of the wacky things that believers have done? What are they? Hmm? What are some of the wacky ways believers have done this to, 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 to demonstrate that they're set apart? What did the monks do? They literally went and set themselves apart, right? What are other things that believers have done over the years? 
Are you afraid to say these things? Like, we've developed dress codes. We've developed, like, all these crazy things that are going to make us set apart from the world. Preach the wrong gospel. Preach rules, right? Legalism, yeah. Bumper stickers. Now it's, now it's just memes on Facebook. Every once in a while I have to remind people that I'm a Christian, so I'm going to put a Bible verse on my Facebook page, right? I can do an angry rant for the other six days. Now I can just throw up a Bible verse on the seventh day and everything's good. What do you mean with Calvinism, Nate? Well, I mean, that's what we see in Romans chapter 8, that those who are chosen by God are the ones that are going to be glorified. That's what we see there. I, don't, I wouldn't call it Calvinism as much as I would just say that's what God's word is. But the point is, the point is here that we're distinct because God's called us and because God's called us, because of what Romans 8 says, that he's working in us to, to sanctify us and change us, we are different from the world. Do we have to go out and like, to tell the world that we're different, or should we just be different? Just be different. And the problem is, is that, that the world is trying to conform us, right? Romans 12 don't be conformed to the world. That's an, the world is actively trying to conform us, friend. It's actively trying to conform us. We have to resist that conformity, do we not? Okay? The way we resist that conformity is what we've already talked about, being in the Word, being, being in front of God in His Word. We're being changed. You want to resist being conformed to the world? Then be transformed by God. Be daily in the Word. You're being from one level of glory to the next. So, the, so if we're not, the danger of not being in the Word, the danger of not fellowship with the Father is, is that that gives the world more opportunity to conform us, doesn't it? Okay? So, so here we are in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. We're chosen, we're a royal priesthood, we're a holy nation, and a people for his own possession. And, and who is it that we are supposed to talk about then? Whose excellencies are we proclaiming? I know it seems so obvious, but when most people share a testimony, who's it about? Right? This is what I was, man. I was a hardcore drinker, alcohol abuser, drinker, and, and drug addict, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and now I'm changed. Oh, and by the way, God did that. Right? Who, whose excellence are we proclaiming here? Here's the thing, can we, ever, can we ever run out of source material when it comes to proclaiming God's excellencies? <laughs> the world is actively trying to destroy the reputation of God, to, to undermine God's excellency. The world is trying to, to, to shroud his, ex, his excellencies, and what are we called to do? Proclaim them, Okay? So in other words, sharing the gospel isn't just a little simple thing like, hey, do you know Jesus and da 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 these three steps and you need to be saved. Proclaiming the gospel begins with proclaiming the excellencies of God. The excellencies of Christ. So I'm reminded, I'm reminded here that, that remember that it was Jesus who, or I think it was Jesus who said this, that they may see your good deeds and glorify what? Glorify your Father who's in heaven. Which changes the, which changes the motive for why we do good deeds, doesn't it? We do good deeds so that our Father looks good. We do good deeds so that his excellencies will be proclaimed, Right? So, keep that in mind now. Let's go over to 2 Corinthians again, chapter 5.
So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul still defending himself to the, to the Corinthian believers, defending his ministry there because it's been under attack, is now talking about what his ministry was that he had been called to, okay? And so he, he, he begins in verse 11 saying this, therefore, because, because of what he says prior to, and in verse 10 he says this, we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, Okay? Um, just a quick reminder, and, and if you're in my Bible study Thursday morning, you better get this right, because we were just in this passage, right? Who's appearing before the judgment seat of Christ? Believers, unbelievers, everybody, who's appearing before the judgment seat of Christ? Just believers. Just believers, okay? This is not a judgment for sin. Where was the believer's sin judged? At the cross. The believer's sin was judged at the cross, Right? Our sin was placed on Christ, it, the God's wrath was poured out on it, correct? Where will unbelievers' sin be judged? At the great white throne, right? Anyone whose name was not found written in Lamb's Book of Life was what? Cast into the lake of fire, right? That's a pretty, it's a pretty permanent judgment there. This is a judgment of believers, okay? This, this judgment, it's an evaluation of believers, Verse 11, therefore, because of that, knowing the fear of the Lord, and he's not talking about this dread terror of the Lord, he's talking about this, this reverence for God, understanding that we're going to be evaluated by him, knowing that, he says, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it's known to your conscience. Paul's saying this about his, his own ministry reputation. He's saying this, I'm persuading others that what I'm doing is, is of truth here, Okay, but I'm also persuading them about the gospel. I'm, I'm using language to try to persuade them. But he says, you guys know me. You know my reputation. He's already been there, okay? Skip down to verse 14. What was it that controlled Paul in his ministry to the Corinthians? Verse 14, he says, it's, he says what? What controls him? The love of Christ. Now, that can be taken two ways, right? It can be taken... Paul's love for Christ or Christ's love for Paul? And there's some who believe that both are there. I would say that if both are there, there's one that's really emphasized, and it's this. It's Christ's love demonstrated for Paul. And here's what we need to focus on, friends. We should be so, so changed and so motivated by the fact that Christ would die on a cross and bear our sins and that he would love us that much that we would be willing to do whatever he would ask us to do. Should we not? As soon as I say that, though, in our minds, we conjure up like the worst thing that he could ask us to do, right? Right? <laughs> Anytime somebody comes to you and says, are you willing to do whatever I ask you to do, you're thinking in your mind, What's the worst thing they could ask me to do, right? That's not the way God looks at this, though. That's not what Paul's saying. He says this, we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sakes died and was raised. What he's saying is this, when you understand what, what happened there, when you really get your mind wrapped around the fact and, and sometimes, and this happens, it, it happens a lot of times with us. How many of you were saved as a child? Me too. Did you fully understand God's love for you at that point? Do you fully understand it now even? Are you growing in that knowledge though? And, and, and that's the way it should be. As we're growing in a knowledge of God's love for us, that should be even more compelling to us and controlling of us should it not and what happens is is that some of us stop stop even thinking about christ's love for us and so we get cold don't we and so reminding ourselves that peter tells us we're chosen we're royal we're holy we're different and, and we're called to live differently and now paul's saying okay christ's love ought to be our controlling thing here 
he, he says this, verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we, we regard him thus no longer. How many of you are guilty like me of looking at people in their flesh and blood and making instant judgments about them? Right? Guy walks into, this, into our Sunday service this morning. He's got a turban on his head, and he's got robes, and, and the woman that he's with has, a, has something over her face. How many of you are making judgments? Yeah. We're making judgments, aren't we? Some of us, a guy walks in here, two sleeves down each arm, and, and big old piercings and, and stuff coming out of his face. How many of us are making judgments? A woman walks in, and she's got a woman on her arm. How many of us are making judgments? Paul's telling us to do what? What's he telling us to do? Is he saying just be loving and inclusive and accepting here? Is that what he's saying? Don't hear me say that. What's he saying to us, though? Where are we supposed to, where is our focus? Our focus is on Christ, but our focus is on we're not regarding anyone according to the flesh. In other words, we're looking beyond the exterior to see what? They got a soul, right? Those people have a soul. And that soul is going to spend eternity either in a place called heaven that God's prepared for them or a place called hell where they will pay for their sin the rest of, their, the rest of eternity. Right? And that's what Paul's telling us to, to, to think like now. And Paul says this, I, I no longer regard people according to flesh. I, I once made a judgment about Jesus. Think about, Paul, before he was saved, made a judgment about Jesus according to the flesh, didn't he? Was it a wrong judgment? Very much so. Very much so. Verse 17, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And what, and what Paul's reminding us is, is that, is that the power of the gospel is so powerful that it can take the most wretched person, and the reason I know that is, is because I was the most wretched person, and it totally transformed me. And that's what we're, that's the message that we're carrying. And he says this, all this, verse 18, all of this is of God, is from God, again, who is the author of salvation? Who is, the, who is the force behind salvation? Who is the one who accomplishes salvation? Do we do it? Who does it? God does it. He does it all. Or whenever, whenever you sang the song, Jesus paid it all, you were a liar then. <laughs> right? Either he did it all or he didn't do any of it, really. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Stop there before we even go any further. What's it mean that we're reconciled? What does it mean that we're reconciled to God? How many of you ever been estranged from a family member? How many of you ever had that made right? What had to happen? What had to happen for that to happen? There had to be forgiveness given. There had to be an understanding of what took place. There had to be an owning up to where you or the other party failed, right? Right? And then there was reconciliation. And it's a beautiful thing, right, when you're reconciled? And so here's what he's saying is, God, through Christ, has reconciled himself. Notice the emphasis again. Who's doing the reconciling? Can we reconcile ourselves to God? Only God can reconcile himself to us through what Christ has done, okay? Words matter here. The, the, the language matters here. God's reconciled himself to us, and that ought to control us because that's a loving act, right? <laughs> the love of Christ controlling us, and then he's given to us something. What's the rest of the verse say? Who better to carry out a ministry of reconciliation than the ones who have been reconciled? Think, look up here. Think about it. 
if, if you are selling a miracle cancer drug, who do you want to be your spokesperson? You want the survivor who benefited from it, right? Right? Okay? Not that we're selling anything, but, but, if, but if I am going to choose to put my message out to the world, I am going to do it through people who have benefited from the message, right? God could have chosen, God's God is all powerful. He can do what he wants to do. Could he have chosen angels to come and just be broadcasters of the ministry of reconciliation? You know, not, not like the cherub angel that you see, but like one of the angels that like you see in the book of Revelation or in Ezekiel. One of those angels shows up in your town and says, be reconciled to God. Do you think the town would reconcile to God? I don't think so. But it, it would be pretty powerful, wouldn't it? Who does God choose to share the message of reconciliation with? How, how do, who does he choose to, to be his tool, his mouthpiece? Those who have been reconciled. Those who have been reconciled. You say, okay, I get it. He's put that ministry on me. Okay, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. We'll keep going. Verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. What's the message of reconciliation? Christ died so that you don't have to pay for your sins. Isn't that what verse 19 says? But I thought it was like five easy steps, and I thought it was then, then you know, read this track to them and pray a prayer. How many of you wrestle with sin in your own life? Can you imagine not knowing Jesus and wrestling with sin? And isn't that what the world's doing right now? And you know what they need to know more than anything? Christ died for you so that you don't have to keep paying for your sins over and 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 over again. That's, it, it's that simple. So he says, verse 20, therefore, because of this, how are we to conduct ourselves? What's our, what's our role? We should all get business cards printed up. Dan Scarberry, ambassador. Isn't that what we are? Look at what it says in verse 20. We are ambassadors for Christ. What do ambassadors do? Do ambassadors choose to give the message? Do they get to choose what they say? So if, if <laughs> I know this is a big if. If our government really cared about what was going on in Russia and Ukraine and we got serious about it and we sent an ambassador over there and we got the two heads of state to sit down and, and we actually said, here's what I want you to say, is that guy allowed to say anything different than what he's been charged with saying? Why not? He's an ambassador, right? Ambassadors don't get to pick what they say. He's handed a file. He's handed a binder. He's handed something. Here's, here's your talking points. And if he wants to stray from those talking points, what does he have to do? And sometimes you stray from talking points in those contexts because men are fallible, right? Is God's message, is God's message perfect? Are there any, is there any reason to go back to God and say, hey, God, I was talking to this person, and they were wondering if maybe, no. We just share the message, right? Here's the message. Sin is horrible, and you are wrestling with your sin. Verse 19, you're, you're, you're dealing with your trespasses, and here's what God's done. God's made a way so that your trespasses don't have to count against you anymore. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? You don't like it presented that way? Look at the way he presents it in verse 21. He summarizes the whole gospel in 21 for us. For he, for our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now be careful with that. Words do matter here. Was Jesus sinful? When it says that he made him to be sin, it means that he put 
our sin on him. He treated him like he was sinful. Right? He made him to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. You know what the person who comes to our church every Sunday who's, who's, who's trapped in pornography or, or adultery or, or, or trapped in, in, in you know, controlling, you know, being controlled by alcohol or drugs, you know what they need more than anything to know? They don't need to know that they need to clean up so that Jesus will love them. You know what they need to know? Jesus was made sin so that you can be made the righteousness of God. And the problem with the world's solution to sin issues is this. They always, have, they always have steps to get there, don't they? Right? There's always steps with the world. You've got to do this, got to do this, got to do this, got to do this. You've got to work, got to work, got to work, got to work, got to work. And the thing is, you never can work hard enough, can you? And the most freeing thing you can tell somebody is this. You just need to stop working at this. It seems so counterintuitive, doesn't it? You just need to stop working at this. You're trying actually too hard at this because Jesus accomplished it all and God wants to give this to you. So the message is that God, through Christ, is reconciling him, himself to the world and our role is, is we just represent the king. God makes his appeal through us. God makes his appeal through us. So here's the thing. If we're not living and if we're not daily being sanctified, if we're not living in that way, how good is our appeal? How good's our appeal? If our life doesn't match our appeal, how good's the appeal? It's kind of like the guy who wants to come in and offer you weight loss, you know, supplements and stuff, and he weighs 580 pounds. Like, hey, this stuff's really working for me. I weighed 582 pounds last year, right? If our, if our life doesn't reflect what Peter talked about in 1 Peter chapter 2, that we're holy, that we're chosen, all those things there, that we're a peculiar people, if our life doesn't reflect that, our message really has no pull at all. So you sound like you're talking about lifestyle evangelism here, PD. No, I'm not talking about lifestyle evangelism. We, we are called to proclaim, but here's the thing. If our life doesn't match our message, we have no point in sharing the message. You know, it's like, it's like yelling at the waiter this afternoon whenever you go out to eat for lunch on Mother's Day, right? And it's like yelling at the waiter for their horrible service and then leaving them attract and say, by the way, Jesus loves you. I don't, but Jesus does. <laughs> right? All right, thoughts or questions? Rick. Well, who got mad with Jesus whenever he tried the empathetic approach, whenever he utilized it? Who got mad with Jesus? Who were the people that were most upset with Jesus whenever he ate lunch with tax collectors and sinners? The religious people, right? The religious people. And, and, and let's be clear here. Is Jesus participating in their sin? Because Jesus had lunch with a tax collector. Is he, was he advocating, yes, let's fleece the people? Because Jesus was having love or lunch with a, with a prostitute. Does that mean that he's advocating prostitution? No. He's simply going to where they are, and, and he's fellowshipping with them. He's, he's getting to know them. He's talking to them, right? Anything else?
Right. Mm -hmm. Because our world is telling them they're not. Our world's telling them you have to change to, to be something that you need to be. Yes. And so ask yourself this, and I know this is so cliche, I mean, I was like, almost like putting the bracelet on. If Jesus were here, how would Jesus address those people? Right? Isn't that the way we should be thinking as, you know? And, and where, where should that drive us then? If I want to know what Jesus would say to those kinds of people, I, I actually have the source document that tells me how he would do it, right? Right? I think about, I think about the, the woman at the well. When Jesus encountered the woman at the well, he, he didn't, you know, he didn't like, yeah, I know you've had a really rough background and I'm so sorry that life has been tough. He just was truthful with her and says, yeah, I know. I know you've had this many partners. And the one that you're living with right now, you're not married to. I know that. And the thing is, the typical Jewish man would have never talked to the Samaritan one, much less talked to the Samaritan who's the adulterer. Right? And what's Jesus doing? Talking. He's not condoning the sin, he's sharing truth, right? And, and, and I think that's key in that. I think Rick makes a good point. Ministry of reconciliation, I think many times we view our faith, our faith alone, the fact that we're peculiar puts up a wall, right? We don't have to add to the wall. We don't have to add to the wall. There's already something that distincts us there that makes us very different. Anything else? I hope this is helpful to you. One, that it makes you excited about the fact about what Christ has done for you and what he's given to you in the gospel. And, 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 and being a minister of the gospel doesn't mean that you have to carry your Bible everywhere and, and preach a three-point sermon to people as much as it just means you need to, you need to be open to, to talk to people and to engage them and, and to say, you know what? I get it. You're struggling with these things. Here's the thing. I struggled with that too, and I stopped struggling because I had to come to the point where I understood that Christ died for all this for me, and he paid the penalty. It's the ministry of reconciliation. Hey, Aaron, would you close us in prayer, please?